0: Salute! Good evening. How are we all? I am a few minutes late, but I am going to continue this discussion of the Book of Abraham and Freemasonry and see how the ideas of Freemasonry have found their way into the Book of Abraham. It's really interesting that once we get to know that Joseph Smith was a complete charlatan, right? Because of course his translation of the Egyptian papyri is complete bunk. That it does not translate out as modern Egyptologists say so. Therefore, this proves Joseph Smith is a false prophet, bunk. He is simply a plagiarizer and a thief. I mean, we love to spread the gossip and hurdle the accusations against him. Now, I For whatever reason, because of the subjects that I find so interesting, hey, welcome everybody, because of the subjects I find so interesting, I am recognizing that what I thought I knew is being demonstrated as not technically being so. And this causes alarms to go off in everybody's head when this happens to you. It's why I like to make my videos, because this seems to be the theme of my life. Just when I think I have something figured out, I update my knowledge. If you're not updating your knowledge, you get as out of date as the Mormon church is on social issues right now, right? So my serious suggestion, and it's what I'm trying to emulate in my videos, is it's time for an upgrading of knowledge. The just when I think I understand everything about science, uh, I find new information that just changes everything. Just when I, I mean, the James Webb Telescope. We put the James Webb Telescope up in space for one reason to show us how ignorant we really are of the cosmos. We only know about four percent at best. There are still huge cosmological riddles that we haven't figured out. At All, And so we must remain humble. We must remain willing to change our minds as new evidence comes in. And nobody wants to do this because we need certainty in our lives. And I have horrible news. You don't get to have that here. Because we're finite. We cannot grasp the whole. Therefore, when new information comes in that attacks our knowledge, that we internalize and think, well, this is an offense against me because I know, I know, (laughs) right? Then our sacred cows get slayed by the new knowledge. And it really rankles some people. They're comfortable in the old grooves. I've got horrible news for you. You don't get a stay in old grooves in life. I promise. Your life had better be different than it was when you were 10 years old or you're not living. Your life had dang well better be different than when you were 20 years old or I've got news for you. You're not paying attention. And if your life is the same as it was when you were 30 years old or 40 years old or 50 years old or 60 years old, then you've wasted your time here. So knowledge is moving. It is not static. It does not sit still. What we knew in Jesus's day is not what we know now. What we knew in the year 1000, which is vastly different than what they knew in Jesus's day, is not our knowledge. What we knew 10 years ago also has changed. So updating, I'm just giving you a fair warning, updating can be a very upsetting process. But for someone like me who wants to know the truth, There is no other choice. So if I seem to be attacking your sacred cows, if I seem to be refuting pet peeve knowledge that you have, that you want to be so true, you'll give your life for it, and yet I'm refuting it with the evidence... I'm not going to apologize. I'm going to say we need to change our approach to this whole aspect of learning. Just because you've got a PhD or just because if you're a college professor, you got tenure. It doesn't mean you're done learning. Just because you graduated from high school doesn't mean you don't have to crack another book. I've got bad news for you. If you're going to watch my channel, you're going to get cracking a lot of books because... I'm going to show you how the updating knowledge of today refutes what we thought we knew yesterday. And that's what is real, right? The only constancy is change, change in our intellect, change in our knowledge. And if we don't change our attitudes and approach in order to become more open to learning information, then your life is going to suck. I I wish I had better (laughs) news for you. (laughs) Life is glorious each and every day if we decide to, and that's what I want to decide. So, hey, Radio Free Mormon, welcome, my friend. Paul Osborne, welcome. Elisa Gilleen, good to see you guys. JB Maybe One, yes. Debbie Joe, hello, hello. Sorry I got here a little bit late. Peter Higgs, good to see you, my friend. Newton Lemnos, good to see you. So... uh. And the reason I bring this introduction up is for a very important key point that I'm going to share with you tonight. I thought I had pretty much exhausted the conceptual book of Abraham as completely phony. Egyptologically, it seriously makes no sense historically, it really doesn't have much of a leg to stand on. But are those the only two avenues of approach to documents? Nope, it's not, sincerely. This book, this book is turning my world upside down, man. Infinite method. Method, sorry, I'm reading it backwards in the camera. Oh boy, what a dork. Method infinite, Freemasonry and Mormonism. So what I'm going to say tonight is in order to grasp this point of view, which I believe has some teeth to it, truly. Now I'm saying that both as a Mason And as a wannabe scholar, I don't dare call myself a scholar because I don't have a PhD and therefore I would be eviscerated by the true scholars and they would be justified. But I am an enthusiastic learner and make no mistake about it, I read as much as I can in all subjects, on all sides. And let's see what each side has to say. From a Freemasonry point of view, I have discovered a brand new appreciation for Joseph Smith and the book of Abraham. I've lambasted him in former videos. In this video, this book is going to teach us to at least gain an appreciation of something he may have been involved in wanting to do that we haven't caught wind yet, but we are catching wind. This book helps. So, with that, holy shish kebab. Okay, so, all right, uh, looks like we're all here. Let's get going here. Three likes already. Wow, you guys are way too kind. Give me another 50, will you? Even though there's only six people here. Oh, no, it looks like there's 18, so folks are coming in. This chapter, chapter seven in Method Infinite, seriously, the book of Abraham advancing the interests of true masonry. Now, the whole text shows an historical background from before Joseph Smith was born to well after he died that is intricately interlaced with masonry like I have never imagined it before. That this is the kind of book I love to read because it gives me a new perspective. It gives me a better depth. It gives me a better width on how to grasp a either a historical subject or a philosophical subject or a religious subject or a science subject or an economics or politics subject, or a geography subject, whatever subject, bicycling in the mountains. It's always good to read all sides on how to do that. Otherwise, you may get seriously hurt or die in the mountains on a bicycle. It's the same principle here. I've come to appreciate this. Let's jump into this. I'm in chapter seven, page 147. Aware of the interest that Freemasons took in Egyptian antiquities, Michael Chandler first displayed the mummies and other curiosities at the Masonic Hall, Philadelphia, April 3rd and April 22nd, 1833. He went right to the Masons because he was aware they had an interest in Egyptian antiquities. Very interesting. September of the same year, the exhibit was also shown at the Masonic Hall in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Now, I'm going to read this footnote because it was this footnote that got me to do last night's podcast on the symbolism of the $1 bill because it ties in with this. By 1728, so this is pretty early 1700s, 100 years before Joseph Smith, more or less, the seal of a lodge in Naples, it already displayed a pyramid and sphinx. The seal of the Masonic Lodge displayed a pyramid and a sphinx in 1770, an Egyptian initiation path through seven degrees, an Egyptian initiation of seven degrees was held in a German Masonic tract. The apprentice was initiated into the sciences and the common hieroglyphic writing system. And then clad in an Egyptian fashion, you, you've heard the song walk like an Egyptian. Well, these guys dressed like an Egyptian, right? They they were they were really enamored with the Egyptian stuff, these Freemasons were for a hundred years before joseph smith showed up now this catches my eye this is interesting so they they donned in their regalia a pyramid-shaped cap man wouldn't you love to get a picture of that i mean talk about a hoot they probably looked like goonie loonies but it's the ritual aspect I could just envision me in a pyramid shaped hat. Oh, crap. I should have made one and wore it tonight. I wasn't thinking. An apron and a collar. In the third degree, he passed through the door of death into a room containing embalmed bodies, embalmed bodies, and the coffin of Osiris. So here he learned hierogrammatic writing in the sixth degree, as he advanced upward into the sixth degree, he learned about the stars, and he learned about the divine. And then with the password ibis, he reached the seventh and last degree, that of a prophet. So early American Freemasons now demonstrated the Egyptian influence as well, adorning the $1 bill with a pyramid and an all-seeing eye. And that's what I was showing you last night. And I was trying to express the background knowledge, which was if it didn't shock you at how enormous it was, I probably put you to sleep, for which I apologize. But the background knowledge of these symbols together, that truncated pyramid with the all-seeing eye and the, uh, the Latin around it and the, uh, the, the landscape, it was phenomenal. Now, this is a Masonic connection that ties directly into Joseph Smith and this is how it works. So that's what I want to share with you. So I'm going to skip and jump through this chapter. Hi, Debbie Joe. Welcome. Good to see you. Okay. To those who believe the legendary history of Freemasonry. Now, Masonry has legends, of course. I mean, if if you're not a Mason, Uh, You may not grasp this as readily, but there's not literal history involved here. There is truth, and if we're literalists and we want literal truth, then you'll get a particular level, I'll say, a, a particular type of truth. But there's other kinds of truth besides just the literal, right? So legendary truth is what masonry was literally Truly involved with the Kirtland Egyptian papyri must have held an incredible fascination for the Freemasons around Joseph Smith. As Joseph Smith unrolled the scroll that he would believe to be the writings of Abraham, the first figure to catch his eye was what appeared to be the attempted sacrifice of Abraham at the spurious rites of the Egyptian priests a drawing of what he perceived as Abraham in Pharaoh's court. That would have been facsimile number three. Reaching, teaching the principles of astronomy to the Egyptians, that was on the other end of the scroll. It seemed that to the mind of the prophet, God had miraculously delivered the the original scriptural stories of the patriarch Abraham into his hands. So by rendering the hieroglyphic text on the papyrus into modern language, Joseph Smith was taking up the role of a Masonic restorer. What he was bringing to light was the heretofore concealed Masonic and priestly mysteries. Okay, with that basis, let's forget that he mistranslated the papyri in the Egyptian because he didn't do it right. We we get that. Okay. Right. Okay. What if we don our Masonic attitude here and let's see how well the book of Abraham fits with a Masonic inclination rather than an ancient historical or an ancient Egyptian or even an ancient biblical. Even though many of the legends of the Masons Correlated extremely well with the legends in the Bible. Let's see, <clears throat> let's see how the book of Abraham fares as a Masonic text. This is what we want to look at. Although some authors exult in pointing out the similarities of Mormon scripture, especially the book of Abraham with the ancient past oh boy, do they. And so far, they haven't done so hot because they're approaching it from a, a literal historical approach, aren't they? Yeah, you know, the John Geese the Hugh Nibleys, the Kerry Mulsteins, the Michael Dennis Rhodes. And so they're obviously, their parallels are stretched, they're skewed, they're warped. They really don't carry uh, a whole lot of conviction as far as I'm concerned. So we must follow the chain of inference from the closest to the furthest out. So let's do that. Masons had been studying and drawing on comparisons between their rites and the ancient Egyptians. They just shared some of the evidence there for a very long time, providing Joseph Smith and everyone around him with ample and readily available interpretations of the biblical and ancient world from the Masonic end. So let's take a look. That's what I love about research and studying. Always a new angle, and I love it when I can get one that begins to make sense of such an enigmatic text, like the Book of Abraham is, right? Interesting stuff here. Well, during Smith's day, there were roughly four streams of thought on the Masonic origins. Each one is based more or less on the legends and the myths found in the old Gothic constitutions, that is, the from the 1200s up in ancient Europe. Their constitutions, these ideas and themes, are found back to that point, according to this source, Method Infinite. Of significance to Latter-day Saints, each of these legends engages each of these Gothic legends engage the Masonic transmission of the Masonic mysteries through ancient Egypt. Now, that's interesting. Okay. Freemasons claimed that the authentic mysteries had descended to them pure and undefiled over the course of time. Interestingly enough, they go all the way back to Adam. And George Oliver in the Antiquities of Freemasonry absolutely fundamentally shares that information. Uh, They go all the way back to Adam, then they come up through Noah and his sons to ancient Egypt. And from there, they run through Solomon and ancient Israel. So eventually, what we find is in modern times, and Mason George Oliver theorized that when Masonry entered Egypt, it was corrupted by the magicians of the pharaoh so this is the this is the masonic legend idea but it's really interesting that they connected it they tied it in with the egyptians in joseph smith's day to them that was the place to go to find out the mysteries Very interesting. It's evident that before the call of Abraham to restore the true worship, along with the purity of masonry, the efforts of the Kabiri in conjunction with Thoth and others had succeeded in substituting their mysteries for truth amongst the posterity of Shem as well as of Ham and of Japheth. So you can see that they're taking the legends back to the earliest legends in the biblical record. That is the beginning and the basis from there Masonry moves forward. And now we absolutely see a fascinating parallel with Joseph Smith's theology because he really emphasized Adam, didn't he? And interestingly enough, he emphasized the same patriarchs that Masons emphasize, Noah, Enoch, Melchizedek Abraham Isaac and Jacob all the all the main ones very interesting so like the works of prominent 18th that is in the 1700s and 19th century masonic writers The book of Abraham, this is what is so interesting because this is just the theme that from the 1700s all the way up through there, all the way up into the 1800s and all the way through the 1800s, the emphasis in masonry was the use of proper authority when imparting or administering the mysteries. So it tells the story of a righteous Pharaoh, a good man who earnestly sought to imitate the true order established by the fathers. That's Abraham 126. Despite his righteous intentions, of course, Pharaoh didn't have the proper authority to administer. So through this story in the book of Abraham, what Joseph Smith is doing Masonically is he reveals his attitude toward the contemporary and spurious craft of Masonry, And Joseph Smith also reveals that he was relying on George Oliver's publications in his day. George Oliver was the singular most prominent Mason in the whole of New England. He wrote 30 books and they were easily accessible. So it's very interesting. Assuming that Joseph's midrash is meant. To address the issue of Masonic authority, what it now does is it warns that Freemasons may be righteous and good men, but at best they can only imitate the ancient order that is the property of the holy priesthood. And this was the Masonic theme. There was a holy priesthood to be held in Joseph Smith's days, Masonry. Theologically, The 19th century Freemasonry held no power for salvation, at least theologically. The Royal Archmasons, what they did is they replicated the tabernacle of the wilderness, right? And the Ark of the Covenant and the related holy items. And what this gave them was not literal truth. It didn't give them literal history. This was their allegory that they built around to the recovery of truth. They are basing their whole idea on an allegorical reading of history and legend and myth. So in Smith's view though, here's how Joseph began to change it up somewhat. This was all a pale imitation of the real thing and he could provide it. That was his approach. He said, yeah, all right, I, I, I get your legends and all that jazz, but I'm going to give you the real stuff. So he told his private secretary, Benjamin F. Johnson, that Freemasonry was the apostate endowment as sectarian religion was the apostate religion. So it is significant that Joseph Smith called masonry the apostate endowment, as the fundamental concerns of his own Abraham Midrash in the book of Abraham was the issue of legitimate versus spurious masonry. His translation of the Egyptian papyri tells of Egyptians who would fain claim the right of the priesthood from Noah through Ham. that's Abraham 127, alluding to the Masons because they claimed their doctrines and geometry pure from Ham through the priesthood of the Egyptians. Interesting how Joseph Smith puts a little twist in that. In 19th century America, Ham was considered the ancestor of Africans, and biblical passages like Genesis 9, 25-27, provided justification to enslave them. They actually used the Bible to justify slavery. And although the book of Abraham was later used to justify denying priesthood ordination to men of African descent— Evidence suggests that Joseph Smith was favorable toward the ordination of free black men. Elijah Abel and others received the priesthood, and he never used the Abraham passages to establish an anti-Negro policy. That came later through Brigham Young, which is so unfortunate, but that's the way it is. This is because the central issue of this passage in the book of Abraham is not one of race except in an incidental way. The whole issue is how legitimate authority is transferred. And this was definitely on the Mason's mind in his day. So you can see that even within the book itself, and, and there's many other ideas. Even within the book itself, Joseph Smith is being much more Masonic than literal historical. So this was an eye-opener for me. Now, the pages of the book of Abraham also contain doctrinal content on celestial bodies. It also has doctrinal content on spiritual beings, And this is placed in a Masonic framing. This so surprised me. I had never before supposed it. This was fun stuff. It's what makes this book so fun for me personally. If you haven't got it yet, you're missing out. You need to go to Greg Colford Books and get this book. No, they're not paying me to advertise their book. I wouldn't take their money anyway. It's just filthy lucre. (laughs) Okay, I would take a little of it. Hundred billion, you know, I'm not greedy here. <laughs> oh, now Joseph Smith presented what he saw as the original cosmology of Abraham, which had been given by the patriarch to the Egyptians in ancient times. Right, so Abraham three describes the great and the governing stars, which are nearest unto the throne of God. That's Abraham three too, right? And the star Kolob being the greatest of all the Kokabim, the stars. There's that Hebrew word, right? That he put into the Egyptian because he was studying Hebrew, that thou hast seen because it's nearest unto God. So Kolob's the nearest unto God. Okay, we get all that. Now, here is the Masonic thrust of Kolob. And this was so fascinating to me. Not a parallel, an understood background, that if we're not Masons, even though I was a Mason, I never grasped this as a Masonic background. Here it is. Masonic writer Will Hutchinson referred to a similar concept in 1775. He described a supreme being who produced other immortal and spiritual natures, some of whom were placed in the higher regions, others were placed in the lower regions, Those in the lower regions were nighest to the place of matter. So Hutchinson described what was later incorporated into Mormonism as a tripartite, that is a threefold, theory of spirit creation. Wow. I had no idea. In this theory, here's the kicker. In this theory, Intelligence exists in non-created form until organized into a spirit being by God himself. The spirit can then inhabit a human body and become a mortal being. That's a Masonic background. Wow, that was awesome. The book of Abraham compares these higher and lower intelligences to the very order of the heavens themselves. So here's another interesting connect. Thus, there shall be the reckoning of the time of one planet above another until thou come nigh unto Kolob, which is set nigh unto the throne of God to govern all. So if two things exist and there be one above the other, there shall be greater things above them. These two facts do exist, that there are two spirits, one being more intelligent than the other. There shall be another more intelligent than they. I am the Lord thy God. I am more intelligent than they all. Now, now that's book Abraham's stuff, right? This is the pre-mortal existence of spirits and intelligences, which no Mormon leader in the last 50 years has ever bothered even talking about, right? because they haven't got a blasted clue about its significance, because for whatever ridiculously silly apostate reason, they don't understand masonry, and nor do they want to. Uh, so they really don't like Joseph Smith's involvement here. But it's very solid, which is remarkable. The scripture also makes clear that spirits have no beginning, They existed before, and they're not going to have an end. They shall exist after, but they are nolam, the the Hebrew word for eternal. So this language, now now, see, Joseph Smith said this is God's language in the book of Abraham. This is God speaking, right, in, in his book of Abraham, particularly the use of the word intelligent suggests a broader thematic argument that spirits and intelligence are eternal. The prophet would later discuss this in some detail. He says, the mind or the intelligence which man possesses is co-equal, B.H. Roberts said co-eternal, in brackets, with God himself. I am dwelling on the immortality of the spirit of man. So here's this Masonic theme, right? The intelligence of spirits had no beginning and neither will they have any end. There never was a time when there were no spirits, for they were co-equal or co-eternal with our Father in Heaven. That's a Masonic theme, something I had never thought. Very, very excellent detective work on Bruno and Swick and Litursky's part here from my thinking. Now, Smith believed that the human spirit was not a created being. Instead, the Father called all of the spirits before him at the creation of man, and then he organized them. Now, this was Joseph Smith's utilizing the Masonic concept, but putting his own stamp on it. In his 1775 book, The Spirit of Masonry, Hutchinson quotes a Dr. Prudeau who comments on analogous aspects of celestial bodies and spiritual beings or intelligences. There's the word in a Masonic text. Wow. He remarks that in Abraham's day, Here is what the Egyptians themselves believed. The sun, the moon, the stars were habitations of intelligences, which animated the orbs in the same manner as the soul animates the man, the body of the man. And they were causes of their motion and that these intelligences were of a middle sort between God and them. So they thought these the properest things to be mediators between God and man and therefore the planets being nearest of all the heavenly bodies and generally looked on to have the greatest influence on our world. They made choice of them in the first place as their God's mediators, who were to mediate with the supreme God for them and to procure mercies and favors which they prayed for. And Now, those of you who've gone through the endowment, especially before they started making all the changes, this should just be ringing bells all off in your head. Seriously. This is, quite frankly, remarkable that it so may sound. Perhaps we've misunderstood the context and put our own literal thinking back onto Joseph Smith and incorrectly judged him. See, I told you, I'm not going to spare anybody's sacred cows of knowledge. This book opened up a whole new field for me. This is really exciting. And I am going to be talking more about it with Dan Vogel. Uh, Sunday, 6 o'clock, this coming up Sunday, we're going to start a series. So, hey, Doug Vincent, good to see you. John Rosbarski, Patty Cake, hello all. Good to see all of you. So, now what about this council in heaven? Here again, we get a valid Masonic theme here. Freemasons also commented on how the divine creative work was realized, specifically the royal arch degree alludes to a grand council that existed eternally in the heavens. It is first mentioned during the preliminary prayer of that degree. Now here's the prayer to the royal arch degree in Joseph Smith's day of Freemasonry. And finally, O merciful Father, when we shall have passed through the outward veils of these earthly courts, when the earthly house of the tabernacle shall be dissolved, may we be admitted into the Holy of Holies above, into the presence of the Grand Council of Heaven, where the Supreme High Priest forever resides, forever reigns. Amen. So mote it be. That's quite a prayer. Seriously. Even I, as an apologist, was looking for the ancient parallels to this council of the gods in heaven in the ancient materials in the Bible. And and quite frankly, in the Bible, the the council of the gods is actually pretty prominent. Uh, Once you know what you're looking for, it's definitely there. So, of course, everybody said, well, he just stole it from the Bible. No, he has something deeper and more broad here. And then, of course, in our own potential, possibly myopic understanding, we're condemning Joseph Smith. Oh, he's just staling it from the Masons. Yet historically, Method Infinite shows that there was no single correct orthodox Masonic right in Joseph Smith's day and many different lodges, even throughout America, let alone Europe, were taking bits and pieces of other Masonic lodges' rites, and they were putting them together in a completely different way than those other lodges had, and they were putting twists and turns into them, and they were creating their own free Masonic rites. And nobody was getting in trouble for doing this. But it seemed like that was a trend for quite a while that overlays Joseph Smith's lifetime. So thief? Maybe not. Maybe a gifted genius creator of a right that he understood to be more accurate than the ones he saw or heard about through the various Masonic exposés. Someone on the, on the Mormonism Live, when they did their Masonry in Mormonism, someone in the comments really lambasted me saying, yeah, the backyard professor is just yipping and yapping and yammering about everybody in Joseph Smith's day, telling him all about Masonry, all of his family members and all that. And apparently the dumb idiot doesn't realize how secret Masons are. Well, this dumb idiot does know how secretive and serious the Masons are about it. That it wasn't the family members that Joseph Smith was getting the information. They were not reneging and and lying about their oaths. They kept them secret, but they were giving Joseph Smith the Masonic exposes. Those were perfectly legitimate to look at. That's where Joseph Smith was getting his Masonic knowledge from, not his own family members. That is until he became a Mason, right? But that was way later in life. We're talking 1830s here. We're talking 1835 here, seven years before he became a Freemason. So this is big stuff. This is really interesting here. Now, here we go. Salem town, the grand chaplain of the grand chapter of the Royal Arch Masons in New York. It mentioned another function of this council in heaven, such the Grand Council of Eternity, which devised and executed the great plan of man's redemption. Now, look, when I was, when I was going to lodge, I, I was told Freemasonry is not a religion. we're a a brotherhood. We're not a religion. But this is sure religious teaching, isn't it? Very interesting. To royal archmasons, the work of the Grand Council is both creative and redemptive. Okay, well, that's how Joseph Smith put it in his own book of Abraham. Yeah, so this is reflecting the Masonic attitude and approach to grasping on earth as it is in heaven. A very hermetic principle, which of course the Masons were very familiar with. Lehi's speech in the Book of Mormon, all things must needs be have an opposition. There must be, or there is no existence, etc." Well, hello, hermetic doctrine. True story man, as above so below that's on the tablet that's on the Emerald tablet of uh, Hermes Trismegistus, the perhaps the most famous tablet in all of history. So anyway this idea now then now let's go back to the chapter three in the book of Abraham on Joseph Smith's Midrash. Yes, I know he was claiming he translated. It. We're gonna call this a Midrash because. He is including legend and lore from a background of legend and lore with a spiritual incentive teaching, so to speak. Here's what it says. He develops a passage in Psalms in a strikingly similar manner here. Get this. The Psalm itself is vague. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. This is the very famous Psalm 82, verse 1. In the book of Abraham, the reader is told of a group of premortal souls gathered in the presence of God. Now, in counsel, these souls considered the Father's great plan of salvation, including the creation, the fall, the atonement. Now, the Lord had shown unto me, Abraham, the intelligences that were organized before the world was. And among all of these, there were many great, noble ones, and there stood among them one that was like unto God. And he said unto those who were with him, We will go down for there is space there. Endowment anybody? I mean, Joseph Smith is putting the Mabu Temple endowment, the endowment I went through, in the book of Scripture. This is fantastically interesting. And it is a Masonic basis for this discussion. It's in the endowment, man. No kidding. We will go down for there is space there. Ask Radio Free Mormon right now if he's still here. If he he thinks I'm kidding, he'll know what I'm talking about. He went through this too. Several of you have. And we will take of these materials and we will make an earth whereon these may dwell. And we will prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever. The Lord, their God, shall command them. And they who keep their first estate shall be added upon. And they who keep their not their first estate shall not have glory in the same kingdom with those who keep their first estate. That's Abraham three twenty-two through 26. So. What is happening is Joseph Smith, being stimulated by the Masonic concepts, added his own prophetic insight back onto the biblical record. Now, this is exactly how George Oliver, in his Antiquities of Freemasonry, this is exactly how he was doing his commentary for the Masons of his day, and he was world-renowned. Tens of thousands of Masons knew about his materials, and he too was utilizing the biblical text with the Freemasonic legends to talk about a pre-mortal existent grand council in heaven with the angels being Freemasons. And when they came down to instruct Adam, they instructed him in Freemasonry. So you can see that there isn't only a correct interpretation of the Bible, or else you're an apostate, or you're just wrong, or you don't belong in this church. There's none of that noise. Everybody was putting together the rituals that would work within their particular area of influence. Everybody, including Joseph Smith, the Mormon prophet. And we have it in his book of Abraham. But there's a lot more. Let me keep going. This just gets deeper. What about the facsimiles, you say? Good question. Let me give you facsimiles. And any of you who remember when I was an apologist, will know that I took these on head on. The facsimiles became my cup of tea. I loved looking for the ancient Egyptian parallels because, of course, Hugh Nibley had written his message of the Joseph Smith papyri. Um, I actually have it here somewhere. I know, I know you get tired of me doing this. It's back here somewhere. And, of course, he found the ancient Egyptian parallels. But hold on. Wait, wait. There's another view that I never even entertained, and it is much more instructive. It's much more useful as far as I'm concerned. And this, of course, is the Masonic background. And it took a Bruno Swick-Litursky tri-authorship to bring this out that made me go, wow, I am seeing a new Context in a new light of day. Yeah. The Egyptian papri were adorned and with several intriguing drawings that Joseph Smith connected with the story of Abraham, which is pure bunk from a literal Egyptological point of view, as we now well know. But from a Masonic theme, it's spot on. Let me keep going. In 1841, he commissioned artist Reuben Hedlock to engrave printing blocks of three of the images and accompanied these with keys to explain the figures in each one. So Masonic language and symbolism can easily be seen in both of these engravings and their accompanying explanations, something I wouldn't have ever guessed. This is just Phenomenal, because there is no manuscript evidence of any of the facsimiles or their explanations before 1842. Some have assumed that the Masonic influence in those writings come from the Nauvoo period. This is what they're looking at. However, much of the material included in the explanations was mentioned in Joseph Smith's 1835 translation activities. And here's an example that they give. His journal entry, October 1st, 1835, reads, This afternoon labored on the Egyptian alphabet. In company with brothers O. Cowdery and W. W. Phelps, the system of astronomy was unfolded. So this evidently refers to the bound grammar and alphabet, where on page 24, the subject matter shifts from Abraham, Egypt, and the patriarchal priesthood, to astronomy additionally entries in the grammar document penned by WW w., or Warren Parrish I mean those penned by him shortly after October 29th 1835 introduce the Flos Isis the fourth fixed governing star at the end of the fifth fourth and third degrees and Kolob, and this is the first creation nearer to the celestial or the residence of God at the end of all five degrees. Influence from the above passages can be seen in the explanatory key for facsimile number two. So the facsimile's connection with Abraham, with the patriarchal priesthood, and with the knowledge of astronomy. Persuasively derives from Freemasonry and substantially dates from 1835. Discussing a ritual designed to prepare an aspirant for initiation into esoteric knowledge, here is what George Oliver talked about. Here's his words. He says, There is scarcely a single ceremony in Freemasonry, but we find its corresponding rite in one or another of the idolatrous mysteries. And the coincidence can only be accounted for by supposing that these mysteries were derived from masonry. Did you get that? Masonry is not derived from the mysteries. The reason these ancient mysteries are so close to masonry is because it was the original. That was George Oliver's musing. Yeah, so let's keep looking here. Of course, Masonry might have been derived from idolatrous mysteries instead of the other way around, but it was nonetheless important to establish a link between Masonry and idolatrous rites, rituals, and customs. It legitimized the interpretation of any practice similar to Freemasonry through a Masonic lens. And this is what I was getting at. None of the lodges, not, I should put it this way, not all of the lodges had the same rituals. Not all of them emphasized the same legends in the same order either. They were all looking at different places anciently to help them flesh out their rituals. Albert Pike is really famous for saying the Blue Lodge rituals, the Blue Lodge symbolisms, the meaning for the Blue Lodge uh, ritual itself comes from Hermeticism. And yet when he got to the Royal Arch, if I remember right, the Royal Arch, he said the key to understanding this is not to go to Egypt. You have to go to India. And he began bringing in the symbolism. This is in uh, Pikes Esoterica. I left it upstairs. Darn it. I was going to show it to you tonight. I can't, I don't have time. But uh, in Pikes Esoterica, authored by Arturo de Hoyos. So there isn't a uniformity, is what I'm trying to tell you. In Masonic knowledge in Joseph Smith's day, there was no single uniformity, none whatsoever. So in that regard then, Oliver described an ancient mystical custom an aspirant had to perform before he could participate in the higher secrets. He w- this is what he had to do. Joseph Smith had access to this knowledge. He had access to the books. Listen, this is crazy. Here's what the guy did. He was placed within the pastos, that is, the bed. Uh, in some places, it was an actual coffin. Here he fasted for three days and nights in seclusion and darkness until he reached a proper state of mind. I mean, this is very shamanistic, you guys. Merce Iliada on shamanism. *Carl uh, Rock*. you, you You read these guys on ancient shamanism, man. This is ancient shamanism these guys are working in. After the proper state of mind was received, after fasting for three days and three nights all alone on a table in the dark, then he received certain great and important truths. I am inclined to think, said Oliver, that when the aspirant entered into the mystic cell he was directed to lay himself down upon the bed which shadowed out the tomb or coffin of the great father. Wow. While lying on this holy couch, quote, holy couch in simulation of his. Figurative deceased prototype. This is very Hiram Abiff Masonic symbols man. He reproduced first the deep sleep of death, and then a resurrection from the bed. His restoration to life, or else his regeneration into a new world. Wow! That's Freemasonic ritual, you guys. <laughs> wow! Joseph Smith had access to this, you guys. Now, this could correspond to the scene that Smith saw of Abraham on the sacrificial bed, in fact, facsimile number one. The resulting Mormon midrash involved Abraham's forced immolation on the lion couch by the idolatrous priest of Pharaoh, so hands raised in the grand hailing sign of a master mason. I am embarrassed to have to say I never recognized that because in my apologetic days, I was trying to be Hugh Nibley Frickin junior And all I wanted to find was the ancient Egyptian parallel to that. And astonishingly, it is the gesture of prayer. But this is also the gesture of the Freemason, the Master Mason. Abraham was raised from that bed and initiated into the higher mysteries. This isn't Egyptian. It's Masonic. Phenomenal. So let me keep going. Now I'm on page 156, Method Infinite. Facsimile number two. Now here we're going to go to the, the cosmology, the keywords, the signs, the tokens, and the penalties. Did you catch that? The signs, the tokens, and the penalties. We're talking temple endowment here, you guys, with facsimile number two. From the Masonic end of things. So, the higher mysteries received by Abraham are laid out in facsimile number two. Joseph Smith described this in the most Masonic terms of any of the facsimiles, imbued it with religious significance, and then he turned around and he used this facsimile number two as allegorical temple instructions. So, his explanation of the facsimile suggests he considered the circular hypocephalus to be Abraham's teachings on Egyptian cosmology. Okay, the shape of the facsimile calls to mind an eternal round, a concept of the universe. Okay, a Masonic concept of the universe. Now, Smith understood the figure labeled number one to be Kolob, uh, signifying the first creation nearest to the celestial or the residence of God. Okay, we've got that. And keeping the same celestial measurement of time also, next to Kolob was number two, Oliblish, holding the key of power pertaining to other planets. These were said to be revealed to or from God to Abraham, as he offered sacrifice upon the altar. The original word wording was as he offered incense, but that's been struck out and changed to sacrifice upon an altar. This is in the Joseph Smith papers. So then, just as George Oliver did in his Masonic writings, Joseph Smith pictured Abraham as the recipient of heavenly instructions concerning two subjects very critical and emphasized in masonry, that is, mathematics and astronomy. That is precisely the emphasis, in fact, similar number three two that Joseph Smith gave. He also possessed a Masonic-like priesthood with its grand key words. How in the hell could I have missed that as a Mason? I can't begin to tell you. I don't know. I was stuck off in Mormon apologetic ridiculousness. But there it is, the grand key words bestowed by God to him. Adam, Seth, Noah, and Melchizedek. So in Reuben Hedlock's facsimile of the Hypocephalus, a stylized figure of God on his throne appears to be giving a Masonic sign. (laughs) At this point, I'm just shaking my head. I'm going, oh my gosh, does this ever stop? This is an ancient Egyptian. Joseph Smith doesn't give a damn about the ancient Egyptian except with its tie to masonry. And that's why his explanations are far closer to Masonic explanations than they ever were from the translated hieroglyphic from the Egyptian in a literal manner. Robert Rittner got that right. Joseph Smith blew it with the literal Egyptian translation. There's no question about that. But is that what he was wanting? Apparently not. Joseph Smith hit the nail right on the head with the Masonic emphasis of the Egyptian concepts. Fascinating. His other arm is extended at his side. This section, labeled number seven, represents God sitting on his throne, revealing through the heavens the grand key words of the priesthood. This is royal Arch Masonry. Everyone keeps thinking it's his penis But actually, it also corresponds to a Masonic sign, interestingly enough. Not the penis part, the location of his arm. As also the sign of the Holy Ghost unto Abraham in the form of a dove. And of course, as literal Egyptian, that is just bogus. As Masonic, that's terrifically spot on. Interesting. Similarly, section number three is made to represent God sitting upon his throne, clothed with power and authority, with the crown of eternal light upon his head. How come there are so many different, stupid, ridiculous, obviously un-Egyptian depictions of God here, God there? God here, God there. God has a different attribute here. God has a different attribute there. What an idiot Joseph Smith was. The Egyptians never thought that way. No kidding, cowboy, but the Masons certainly did. This is what began to persuade me that I had to open my mind and quit thinking I understood everything about Joseph Smith's Book of Abraham. Because now there's a context coming out that is remarkably fabulous and it fits. This crown of light would be understood in Masonic terms to represent a fullness of understanding. Exactly. I, too, have wore that crown as a Mason. I get it. Unbelievable. I can't believe I did not see this before. (laughs) This section also represents the grand key words of the holy priesthood. As revealed, to who? To who? Where did he say it began? Adam, in the Garden of Eden, exactly where Freemasonry said. Exactly. The Egyptians didn't know any Adam. They didn't know Melchizedek. They didn't know any of the biblical personalities. Cry I demonstrated that in my earlier videos. But That's not who Joseph Smith is utilizing as the basis for his teaching here and his symbolism. The Masonic principle here is spot on. It began with Adam in the Garden of Eden and then to Seth, to Noah, to Melchizedek and Abraham and all to whom the priesthood was revealed. Joseph Smith got this information from George Oliver, the mason. So as shown in the explanatory material, this grand key, this word, is communicated by God, of course, and it's not revealed publicly. Number eight contains writings that cannot be revealed unto the world, but is to be had in the holy temple of God. What a cop-out, idiot translation of the Egyptian hieroglyphics, Joseph Smith, but it's perfect Freemasonry. Here's the click. Here's the, here's the end of it. This confidential instruction pertaining to temples owes a debt to masonry. Where the lodge symbolically represents King Solomon's temple, the secrets mentioned in Joseph Smith's explanation of facsimile number two are the same kind of secrets to be had in Freemasonry. For Masons, as well as the Mormons, concealed ritual elements pertaining to Key signs and key words can only be found in either the temple or the Masonic Lodge. So Smith's treatment of secret words around the border of the hypocephalus, this also parallels in interesting ways the writings around the border of the triangular plate found in the Royal Arch Degree inscribed in the Royal Arch Cipher which represented the golden triangle plate given to Enoch. In some depictions, there is a double-bordered circle around the triangle. And this this is one picture of that triangle. And I do believe they showed this in Mormonism Live when they interviewed Cheryl Bruno. But what is so interesting is additional evidence may suggest that others besides Joseph Smith understood the facsimiles to have Masonic meaning. The earliest extant manuscript of facsimile number two is in the handwriting of Willard Richards. It was created in late 1841 to early 1842 in Nauvoo when recording Joseph Smith's explanatory key for facsimile number two, section number 11. Richards utilized a well-known expression in Freemasonry that concludes every masonic prayer also if the world can find out these numbers so mote it be amen the ori- the origin of the phrase so mote it be is Freemasonry. And this dates from the Middle Ages in England. It's found in two important Masonic manuscripts, the earliest version of the old charges. The Regius Manuscript 1390. This closes with the words, Amen, Amen, so mote it be, so say we all for charity." The Cook Manuscript from 1410, this is before Christopher Columbus, contains the words, Amen, so mote it be. In modern times, groups derived from Masonic, such as Wicca, from Masonic themes, have adopted the Masonic invocation, so mote it be, but in the 19th century, it was an identifying Masonic idiom, and the church changed it from so mote it be to so let it be when they published it in the Times and Seasons. It veiled the Masonic nature of the phrase. That's horrible Egyptian, but it wasn't meant to be. Fascinating. There's our Masonic information and clues. Now, what about facsimile number three? The judgment of the dead. What about that? Egyptologists have agreed that the images on facsimile number three represent the judgment of the dead before the throne of Osiris. Absolutely. Interestingly, by the beginning of the 19th century, now by the beginning of the 1800s, This same scene informed the ritual in the 31st degree of Scottish Rite masonry. Did you know that? Wow! I went through the Scottish Rite, and I did not realize the connection here makes me think I was a pretty sloppy mason. I wasn't paying attention. There was so much to absorb anyway. But, I mean, this just shows the genius of Joseph Smith to be able to see such incredible connections. The initiate takes part in an allegorical Egyptian judgment in the Scottish Rite, an allegorical Egyptian judgment ceremony in which his heart is weighed to determine his character. The Egyptian scene is meaningful to Freemasons because it reinforces universal moral lessons, of course. Joseph Smith interpreted the scene as Abraham sitting upon Pharaoh's throne, reasoning upon the principles of astronomy. Egyptian history? Oh, hell no. Is it Masonic ritual, though? Absolutely. This parallels Masonic tradition where Abraham himself in the Masonic tradition is first tested before the heavens open and he is divinely instructed. In his role as patriarch, that is when he begins to then instruct others in the sciences of, guess which, astronomy and mathematics. The two premier subjects in Freemasonry. I mean, Euclid's 20, 47th uh, problem, which is the Pythagorean theorem, incidentally. The facsimiles as sacred instruction now. The three facsimiles included with Joseph Smith's book of Abraham seem to function in a similar fashion to Masonic tracing boards. It just does not. Once the Masonic background is comprehended, once you get that maybe Joseph isn't being literalistic at all, maybe he's trying to give us some Masonry. Then everything opens up. Now we have parallels to the Masonic tracing boards. A tracing board is associated with each one of the Blue Lodge degrees. The Entered Apprentice, the Fellow Craft, and the Master, right? There's a total of three. The boards are described as containing, quote, hieroglyphics, unquote. They consist of confidential sacred instruction, And this allows Freemasons to remember important points during the ritual, and they can be reminded it's not a crime. There's just so much to know that you have to have a helper. Smith assigned the figures on the facsimiles with certain meanings that would allow Latter-day Saints to be instructed in their esoteric significance. So here again, we're looking at a, well, that's the idea of the allegory, uh, the metaphor. It's not a literal historical at all. Us judging Joseph Smith on that basis is almost criminal on our end, not Joseph Smith's. If he wasn't being literal Egyptian, then you can't beat his head in for not giving us literal Egyptian. He's giving us the Masonic, and he's doing a stellar job of it. So these could function as a mnemonic device for Latter-day Saints. And it it wouldn't have mattered what their original meanings were. They were mnemonic instructions for the way Joseph Smith himself put together the ritual, the endowment, as it were. So the facsimiles illustrate scenes of universal theological importance and the, the brotherhood of man, the universal brotherhood of man in Freemasonry. This is how Joseph Smith saw humankind. As George Oliver noted, again, we go to George Oliver again, Abraham represents the perfect theocratic type. The first facsimile denotes the principle of sacrifice and initiation. That's perfect Freemasonry, guys and gals. In the Mormon Midrash, Abraham is delivered from the attempt of apostate priests to offer him up as a sacrificial victim, of course. and but now he has to face the Lord's baffling request to offer up his own son and heir. Once he has passed this test, the second facsimile illustrates the principle of revelation. The way masonry puts that is, we are seeking the greater, Light. Guess how the Mormon endowment put it in Adam's mouth. Why are you doing what you're doing, you moron? Satan comes down to Adam. Why are you doing that, you idiot? You're wasting your time. Adam says, Man, I don't have a clue. I don't know. I'm waiting for further light and knowledge that Father promised. That is beautiful. Freemasonry, man. (laughs) Really cool, man. So here in the second facsimile, the initiate encounters God who gives him the instructions he needs to part the veil. Finally, in the third facsimile, he reasons upon the principles that he himself has mastered, teaching them to others. That's... Man, that's perfect Freemasonry. <laughs> his position on the throne indicates heavenly ascent and divination. The vignette emphasizes his role as as Freemasonic prophet, priest, and king. And I say, no, wait a minute, church, you've got that wrong. Um, Joseph Smith is the one that said we are going to be prophets, priests, and kings. Yes, he did. And he did not get that from the ancient Egyptians. He got that from the Freemasons, George Oliver, antiquities of Freemasonry in his own day. That's where Joseph Smith got that. So the references to astronomy, to grand keywords, square and compasses, signs, tokens, Penalties included altogether collectively in Joseph Smith's explanatory keys to the facsimiles demonstrates that Freemasonry had become a part of his own revelatory process. It is saturated with it from Kirtland to the Mavu period. The Mormon prophet was mediating upon Masonic. Ideas. He was asking questions about them. He was receiving his answers. And in doing so, Smith actively used Masonic concepts and symbols to build a framework for the book of Abraham and the facsimiles and the papyri. Now, uh, yes, and then Enoch in, in the Tosh Min, in the uh the Book of the Dead belonging to the Lady Eric Men in the papyri. Uh, it is identified. There's a, a little figure of a of a little lady standing before a, a pillar. That has, it has what looks like a spear. Oliver Cowdery called that Enoch's pillar. Everyone says, yeah, Oliver Cowdery was just pilfering from Josephus. No, he actually wasn't. Yes, Josephus mentions the pillar of Enoch. Listen to this. The set of fragments containing small drawings illustrating the text and an interpretive exegesis of those drawings was provided by Oliver Cowdery in The Messenger and Advocate, published December 1835. Enoch's pillar, as mentioned by Josephus, is upon the same roll wrote Calgary. He noted that our present version of the Bible does not mention this fact, but Josephus says that the descendants of Seth were virtuous, and they possessed a great knowledge of the heavenly bodies, and that in consequence of the prophecy of Adam, notice where they always go to, right to the beginning then the world should be destroyed once by fire and again by, or once by water and again by fire. Enoch wrote a history or an account of the same issue and put into two pillars, one of brick and the other one of stone, and that the same were in being at his day in Josephus' time. However, when we examine the relevant passage in Josephus, we find that the antiquarian mentions the children of Seth is the makers of those pillars of brick and stone. It was not Enoch, like Oliver Cowdery claimed. And the inclusion of Enoch into the myth comes from, I'll bet you can't guess where, huh? <laughs> It comes from a 19th century Freemasons who instead had Enoch as the maker of the two pillars. That was a Masonic interpretation of Josephus, which Oliver Cowdery shared, again, tying the very papyri to the Masonic interpretation, not the Egyptian. We, we get it. The literal Egyptian pillar of Enoch in the papyri is absolutely asinine as Freemasonry. It is celestially perfect. Perfect. Wow. So, and again, oh, and this is, this is so cool. Man, this is so cool. Hold on, I got to get a drink. before I, I got to share this with you. This is fantastic stuff. Those of you who remember in 2010, Will Shriver. He postulated that the alphabet, grammar, and the counting documents in the Joseph Smith papyri, they postdated the reception of the book of Abraham, and they were an attempt to put phrases from this and others of Joseph Smith's earlier revelations into a Masonic-like cipher. I was there at that conference. In fact, I actually video recorded him. And then Scott Gordon, the president of the fair, came up to me and he said, there is no way in hell you're going to be allowed to use that. That's our property. So you may as well erase that. Something to that. He said, nobody gets to use this information except us. And looking back on it, I can't blame him. I was pretty pissed at him when he said that. But yeah, I get it. So, but here's the thing. A Masonic cipher in the papyri just does not work. It it, it just doesn't work. And here's why because, and and I showed this in my video uh, on the Joseph Smith papyri, you can go back and relook at these. Um, There are six consecutive figures in the alphabet described by Phelps as early as 1835, letter to his wife. And he says they are a specimen of, once again, guess what? The original pure language of Adam He's always taken it back to Adam. The Egyptians did not know of an Adam, but Joseph Smith doesn't give a damn about what the Egyptians were thinking. He's going with the Masonic legends here. And the characters are not anywhere on the papyri, and yet he put them in his alphabet and grammar. And he said, hey, these are characters from the pure language of Adam. It's a sampling. So this demonstrates that Smith's explorations into pure language, well, this predates Chandler's arrival in Kirtland with the Egyptian mummies by a couple of years, as far as that goes. Now, Howld, Brian Howld, one of the scholars of the time, uh, said that that there's there's something going on. We're not We're not quite accepting of the cipher and all that, but uh, there was a more particular type of Egyptomania and and they were trying to soft pedal the fact that Joseph Smith was just inventing characters because Joseph Smith was just inventing characters. (laughs) I mean, they weren't Egyptian hieroglyphic that's for dang certain. Right? So This same theme is found in Freemasonry in America with this rave about the ancient Egyptians and their pure language going back to Adam. Wow, I mean, wow, and here, This is in James Hardy's New Freemasons Monitor where he says, Freemasonry deals in hieroglyphics, symbols, and allegories, and to be qualified to reveal their meaning, a man must know more than a mere nominal mason. Yeah. So the idea of the grammar as practiced by the ancients. Joseph Smith said this time and again, as practiced by the ancients. What did he mean by this, the grammar from the ancients? Well, we have a clue here that is very interesting. And I wanna read this whole paragraph here. In the same way mystic expand upon the essential meanings of tarot cards to divine the certain things about an individual or a situation, Perhaps Smith was using a divination technique with the characters. Indeed, certain LDS authors have suggested that the prophet used the Egyptian characters as a springboard to revelation. Yeah. Well, Mormon Freemason Clinton Bartholomew has pioneered an investigation into the six pure language of Adam characters in the papyri, in Phelps's specimen letter, and it's repeated in the alphabet, five out of the six characters come from royal arch masonry. Using both the royal arch and the Achbacher ciphers, Bartholomew demonstrates a correlation between the definitions that Joseph Smith gave the hieroglyphics and their English and Hebrew letters. Additionally, he points to evidence that Joseph was taking his conception of the interrelationship. Now, here's how Joseph Smith saw the languages. He said they were interrelated between the Adamic, the Hebrew, and the Egyptian language, but he was getting that directly from Masonic texts and Masonic ciphers. Finally, Bartholomew suggests that Smith was led to believe that the Adamic written language was related to the Royal Arch cipher by Masonic ritual, specifically the Royal Arch degree in which the initiate is shown an artifact produced by Enoch with words written in the Royal Arch cipher. The Royal Arch ritual and tradition then ties together themes of heavenly ascent, exaltation, and restoration, specifically the restoration of pure language and the true pronunciation of the divine name. Temple endowment, anyone? If bells are not ringing in your head right now, you must have been one of those that slept through the endowment too many times, (laughs) right? But notice, it it has nothing to do with the Egyptian. This is pure masonry. (laughs) Utterly fascinating. So uh, I I am running out of time um, and I'm sure I put you all to sleep for sure. But uh, this to me is absolutely incredible. Uh like, like Morris and the creators of the Egyptian rites, the developer of a Masonic degree would often construct a biblical commentary or a biblical midrash upon which to base the Masonic ritual. In the Royal Arch, this backstory recounts the journey of the liberated Jewish captives in Babylon back to Jerusalem to participate in the rebuilding of the temple. So here's this temple theme again, right? In the book of Abraham, Smith develops just such a legend. The same kind of Masonic legend. Abraham's escape from the idolatrous priests of Egypt. Additionally, Abraham's schooling in astronomy and and provides an opportunity for allegorical instruction and potential candidates in the seven liberal arts and sciences. So the Masonic nature of the Egyptian papers is further made clear by the this, this, uh, to me, this is the clincher. This seals the deal. Uh, I, I mean, you can ridicule Joseph Smith all you want about not getting the Egyptian right. And I suppose if you want a feather in your cap and claim you have a point against him, go right ahead. But he absolutely hits the bullseye here. And I hate using this imagery because I used to do that as an apologist. But I can verify personally that this is fundamental Freemasonry. In his explanation in the alphabet and grammar, this is phenomenal. The Masonic nature of the Egyptian papers is further made clear by the five degrees of understanding for each of the hieroglyphs that he was considering, What he did is he arranged several word constructions into degrees, demonstrating his understanding of the progressive nature of Freemasonry. For example, you use the Hebrew word bait for house. This is expanded by degrees in the alphabet and grammar in order to draw more meaning out of the word. So in the first degree, the significance of bait is just simply man's first residence. All right. Well, in the second degree, bait is called a fruitful garden or a great valley or a plain filled with fruit trees and flowers. And you're saying there's no way in hell he could get an entire paragraph out of one little chicken mark looking Egyptian hieroglyphic. Correct. Correct. In ancient Egyptian, he could not have done that. In Freemasonry, if he hadn't had done this, it wouldn't have been accurate. This is so spot on. It's unbelievably wonderful from a Freemason point of view. When added to the first degree, the explanation expands the understanding of what man's first residence was like. Now we see it was a fruitful garden. Now the third degree tells us that bait is good to the taste and it's pleasing to the eye. The fourth is sweet and precious to the smell. Each of these degrees describes how the garden is perceived by the senses. The smell, the taste, the hearing, the sight. In the fifth degree, bait is a place of happiness, purity, holiness, and rest. The five degrees of bait in the Joseph Smith Egyptian papers expand the word's meaning from residence to fruitful garden to a pleasuring of the senses and finally to joy. This mirrors the Masonic initiate's progression through the degrees to greater light and knowledge approaching the divine. That's a perfect fit. This is what has convinced me, yeah, Joseph Smith blew the Egyptian because... He didn't give a damn about the Egyptian. Even though he says, I was translating the Egyptian language. Yes, he was. But he was doing it with the background of the Masonic understanding in their legends and allegories of the Egyptians. That's amazing. This pattern of progressive transformation. Now, notice this theme. In life, we begin as what? Uh, Well, duh, newborns. Just in diapers, right? Well, later on, we grow and we become kids. Later on, we become teenagers and turn our parents gray. Then we become young adults. We are constantly transforming in our physical. And because of our schooling, many of us are fortunate to have had schooling. Some people don't get that, and we've taken it for advantage, right? But so our knowledge grows, increases, changes. In other words, we transform through life. This is the symbolism used in Freemasonry. This is the symbolism Joseph Smith attached to the papyri. In his Joseph Smith papers, to the going from one degree to another, extending the meanings with the Masonic theme, this pattern of progressive transformation of meaning is also evident in the name of the Patriarch Abraham. And I showed that in my former videos. And it just expands like crazy. He was at first. Uh, a follower of righteousness then in another degree he was one who possesses great knowledge then in another degree he's a follower of righteousness a possessor of greater knowledge then finally in the 5th degree Abraham a father of many nations a prince of peace one who keeps the commandments of God a patriarch a rightful heir a high priest etc i mean my godfrey you have to stop and take a breath <gasps> because of the absolute huge expansion. But that is precisely what you get in Freemasonry from the entered apprentice into the expanding transformation of the fellow craft into the mind-boggling, enlightening Master Mason degree. Then you go to the Royal Arch and the whole thing just blooms out. Freemasonry. As in the biblical account, Abraham's name and status are transformed in the fifth degree, where he now holds, guess what? The patriarchal priesthood of high priest, just exactly like in the royal arch Masonic rite. Similarly, every Masonic initiate undergoes a transformation connected with a mythic story as the true meaning of their philosophy is revealed to them through allegory. So a mason who advances stage by stage through the 33 degrees of the masonic hierarchy learns new meanings for each symbol at every stage. What you learn about the square and the compasses as the entered apprentice is different. It's added to in the fellow craft, and then it's added to again in the master mason. Constant additional light and expanding knowledge. This is what we see Joseph Smith doing fundamentally. There's no mistaking this. It makes no sense from the Egyptological point of view. It's absolutely perfect Freemasonry, however. Fascinating. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh Well, Yeah, okay, I'll read this too. Oh, shoot, I'm almost done. Oh, good, I'm going to go a little over. I only have another page and a half. I thought I had two or three more pages. Good, because I wanted to complete this whole chapter just to give you the the grand puma here. So um, in the Royal Arch, as in the other degrees, a grand omnific key word is given now the interesting thing about this keyword you guys is it is deliberately broken into three sim- three syllables uh, so that it may easily be repeated by the companions and the word is similar to the trisyllabic words that smith uses as names of deity in the egyptian papers such as ya o A very interesting, really interesting. Perhaps Joseph Smith's use of strange names to label places and peoples of the restoration has been misunderstood. Rather than concealing their identities, they may be an attempt to transform names and identities into the pure language and reveal certain aspects of their true character. Wow, that's putting the shoe on the other foot, isn't it? Very interesting. So anyway, um, I'm going to go down to this. Well, okay, I'm on page 170. Because of Masonry's Egyptian connection now, it was easy for those who were working with the papyri to put them into Masonic terms. And by gosh, I think these guys have made their case. This this is all in Masonic terms, truly. They connected the papyri with pure language, for one thing. They connected it with higher mysteries, for another thing. They connected it with temple instruction and ritual and they connected it with the ancient order of things. But this ancient order of things is not the literal Egyptian history. It is the Masonic legendary materials that begin at Adam. Uh, George Oliver actually says it begins in a pre-mortal existence in the grand council of the heavens where the intelligences are and the spirits or that was Hutchinson. But George Oliver talks about that premortal existence, and even the angels are Freemasons. Joseph Smith put that in Abraham chapter 3. So in spite of this, what Smith did was not mere slavish borrowing. While the seeds of Mormon midrash can be observed in masonry, these concepts were recontextualized in Mormonism without question. And yeah, that did bother the masons in the neighboring lodges in the neighboring states about how the Mabu Lodge and several of the other Mormon lodges were doing things that bothered him. It made him mad. Uh... Smith used an identifiable process to bring Masonic concepts into a unique Mormon setting. Absolutely. In Joseph Smith's hands, we find many Masonic traditions were transformed into sacred stories, literalized and canonized. So Salem town and others expected that Masonry would be restored to its pristine beauty before, For the second coming of Jesus Christ, and that it would serve as the means by which Christianity itself would be purified, so Joseph Smith conceived of himself as that individual who would both initiate these changes in masonry and complete the climactic task of purifying and restoring true religion. That is what the Masons were looking for. That's what Joseph Smith offered. There were three aspects to his work as this expected restorer. The first one is simply this. He must create and interpret scripture. All Masons did this. Every Masonic ritual does this to this day. <laughs> it really does. So he must create and interpret scripture. Smith fulfilled this prophetic responsibility by producing a unique Mormon midrash rooted in a process similar to Freemasons. The second thing is the prophetic figure must restore the body of legends to a theologically pure form. So he selects, Joseph Smith that is, he selects Masonic stories or traditions and he made them sacred by virtue of his own prophetic office. He used the authority of his priesthood to impart integrity to what he claimed he was restoring. What in masonry may have been an allegory encouraging good moral behavior was thus transformed into literal or factual spiritual history imposing moral imperatives. Eventually, Smith's Mormon Midrash provided a rich font of symbols and allegories from which they could draw. In Masonry, they existed as a secret tradition, and in Mormonism, they became sacred scripture and actually a backdrop for spiritually powerful religious ceremonies, such as the Temple Endowment. The third and final item here is the Masonic Restorer, exemplified by King Solomon, must bring forth a purified ritual. In Masonic legend, Solomon himself created the system of Masonry and ritual that governs the craft to this day. From the earliest introduction of Mormon scripture, Smith's Midrash began to introduce concepts evident in the Kirtland Temple ritual and then continued to bloom in full into the Mavu ritual. Joseph's Midrashic expansions introduced concepts in theology in a decidedly hermetic manner, common to the Freemasons of his day, and they recognized it. That's why so many people flocked to his Freemasonry. He was the largest maker of Master Masons in his day at one point. Fascinating. Absolutely interesting. So modern Latter-day Saints views of how a prophet might approach and interpret scripture are relatively conservative and Protestant in nature. Boy, I should say so. The Mormon leaders today just are clueless. Hopefully, Jeff Bradshaw can help straighten this out, although I'm not not holding my breath. I tried to get in his uh, Zoom meeting last night. None of us could. They blocked us all out. Or else maybe they just didn't know what the hell they were doing and didn't they, yeah, they were like me. I don't I don't know the technology, who knows? anyway, I am gonna get Bradshaw's book because again, it'll open up the Mormon apologetic aspects of this Masonic theme, especially with the endowment. So I'm curious to see what he'll come up with, although I suspect what he's gonna be. So new information coming out. So that's that's the key here. That's that's pretty much the chapter. With this idea, if we think we have the answer and we've taken the full measure of the man or the woman, or we have the full measure of the idea, you know, Newton obviously described it all through his universal system of gravity, right? Then along comes Einstein. Well, oops. Time and space are not absolute, they're relative. So Einstein ended up improving on Newton, but he included it all. And then came quantum physics and the ultra super duper tiny down to the Planck length and time. One times 10 to the negative 43rd of an inch. That's small in case you weren't knowing that. So every time, whether in physics, chemistry, geology, geography, astronomy, science, religion, history, in any subject, just as soon as we think Oh, at last, we know the truth. I promise your end is coming pretty quick because something's already out there we haven't heard of yet. That overthrows or at least expands what we thought we knew into an entirely weird, many times uncomfortable way and position to where we have to let go of what we thought we knew was true. We have to let go of what we thought we grasped as being real because it was only very, very partial and. Being finite, we do not get to see the whole sphere of knowledge, but more of it keeps coming in. And every time it does, without exception, we are transformed in one of two directions. And this is why it's so important to wake up and and pay attention for a moment. The new knowledge coming in will transform us in one of two directions. It is our choice. You can choose to keep your sacred cow alive and throw off any other information and get outdated, or you can choose. To allow yourself to be transformed intellectually, mentally, spiritually, psychologically, so that you grow and expand with the extra light and knowledge that Father promised, because it is constantly coming in, but it's up to us what to do with it. And it will always change what. We think we know this Masonic material is not the last word. Their Masonic interpretation may have many, many faults. I don't know yet because, but I'm exploring that. It may be spot on uh, for 2022, but in 2032, you know, a lot can happen in a decade, right? So, that's my theme. This is what I'm discovering by doing all these videos, is I'm recognizing I have so many subjects, so many marvelous subjects that I love to explore, and yet every time I open a damn book, man, I'm having to change my mind. I'm having to adapt. I'm I'm having to say, oh, man, that gives me a new look at Isaac Newton. Oh, my gosh, that gives me a completely different look about Margaret Thatcher or king pharaoh or whoever it is i'm studying or whatever subject i'm studying and if you're not flexible you can go insane with this because you can get to the point of where you're so disgusted with it that you say enough i'm done learning and that is when you go from gaining more light to beginning to get darkened but it's always up to us So that's enough of my preaching for now. Uh, I love this book. There's a lot more to it, too. I can't wait to get to the endowment stuff. Next Sunday evening, 6 o'clock, I'll be starting this series with Dan Vogel. In the meantime, I suspect if I have a chance... I will be on on Saturday as well and I do have a new video I am working up right now and don't forget the backyardprofessor.org where you can get these as podcasts so that you don't have to watch my silly antics on screen you can listen to it while you're gardening while you're traveling while you're sleeping how whenever and however you want to listen to it, it is entirely up to you so all right you guys thanks so much I love all of you appreciate you being my audience Thank you for all the likes. That's very generous and kind of you. Thank you for your donations and support. Uh, I will be back shortly. In the meantime, remember, be good, do well, have fun, stay good neighbors, make lots of friends, keep smiling. It makes people wonder what you're up to and go to bed early so that you can get your sleep and remain healthy, wealthy, and wise. Holy shish kebab. That was a mouthful. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.